Spirit actually has uh, something different in mind, wanted me to focus on something earlier in the chapter, but just an exhortation to you, baptism at 3 o'clock if you've not been baptized, it's an issue of obedience, and that's what we're going to be talking, to, talking about today, o- o- obeying Jesus, we're going to be looking at uh, the subject of the Lordship of Christ, the Lordship of Christ, you know, uh, the dictionary defines Lordship uh, in this way, it says to surrender to the dominion, power, and authority of a king. Uh, there was a new Navy recruit, uh, and he went up to his commanding officer, and he asked him for a weekend pass. He said, listen, I, I, I have a wedding to attend. Uh, and uh, his commanding officer said, okay, look, I'm going to give you a pass on Saturday, but you've got to be back on board ship Saturday night at 7 o'clock. And he said, sir, you don't understand I'm in the wedding. To which the commanding officer replied, son, you don't understand, you're in the Navy. And, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says this, that we were bought with a price. Uh, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul told Timothy this in 2 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He said, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who listed him as a soldier. Uh, and so we there as Christians, as those that profess faith in Christ, uh, it doesn't matter what we say, it matters what we do, doesn't it? We have the, the, the command of the Lord to be obedient to Him in all that we would do. Uh, now last week <clears throat> we looked at a soldier of Christ, this, this man, Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark. And we saw that he was a young man when Jesus lived and walked on this earth and uh, that he had the opportunity, the great opportunity, to be influenced by many God, godly men and women. Uh, that the church there met in his house. We, we uh, looked at how in, in the book of Acts when Peter had been thrown in prison and they were praying for his release that it was actually at John Mark's house. John Mark being his surname, Mark being the, the common name that he went by. Uh, and uh, so there this, this young man, Mark, I had the great opportunity having the church meeting in his house and having these godly men to mentor him uh, to grow up and to serve the Lord. And how great is that? Uh, that? That each of us needs those mentors in our lives. And that's what we talked about last week. And just for Mark, imagine that he had such... Can you imagine being mentored by the Apostle Paul uh, or mentored by the Apostle Peter? Uh, and yet that's exactly what happened with Mark. As a matter of fact, we said that uh, the book is called The Gospel According to Mark, but truly it could be perhaps better titled The Gospel According to Peter because really uh, Mark spent so much time with the Apostle Peter that uh, most believe these are Peter's accounts of the life and the work of Jesus Christ as uh, told to Mark and as Mark would take the time later in life uh, to, to put them down. Now, we know that this is one of four Gospels uh, in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these Gospels comes about the, 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 the story and, and the life of Jesus Christ here on this earth from a different angle. It's kind of like this. If you've got multiple kids going to school, uh, maybe you've got a boy and a girl, and you, you go to school and you pick them up, and, and the, the girl bops in the car, and you say, hey, honey, how was school today? And she's like, blah, 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 blah. well, Jenny was this, and Mar- Marcy did that, and then the teacher said this, and then, you know, and she's just on and on and on. You can't shut her up. The boy gets in the car, and you say, hey, son, how was school? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. What happened? Who was that? Well, you know, and it's, you know, a different account. So the gospel writers, they come at the ministry of Christ from a different place, from a different account. Matthew, he focused on Jesus, the conquering king. Luke focused on Jesus, the son of man. 
John focused on Jesus, the Son of God. And of course, Mark, as we saw last week, he focuses on Jesus, the suffering servant. Uh, and we shouldn't be uh, you know, freaked out that these guys come at the gospel from different angles. There's just different accounts. So some, some record some stories and some don't. And that doesn't mean that the, there's an inconsistency or that it didn't actually happen. It just means that as this guy was telling the account, you got... You know, he told this part of the work in the ministry of Christ. And as this other guy was telling the account, he told, you know, this aspect of the work in the ministry of Christ. And they harmonize. They all go together. Now, in some of the Gospels, we have the same story repeated in all four, all four Gospels. I'll give you an example. You remember uh, the account there of, of Jesus when uh, he went to his disciples and he asked them this question. He said, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that? That's recorded in all four Gospels, and, and all four Gospels record this, that the disciples said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, yes, but who do you say that I am? And that's a very important question for us today as we talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ and, and worshiping God as Lord, uh, that we would be able to answer, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do men say that I am? Uh, this, this is where Mark starts off, talking about who Jesus is. Mark, beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 1, reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Mark establishes uh, several truths here very quickly right out the gate. As a matter of fact, it's been said that the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, has more information stuffed into one chapter than any other book in the Bible has in one individual chapter. And so Mark, he establishes several truths here really quickly. The first truth, we read that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. The gospel meaning the good news. This is the good news of Christ. The good news that Christ came to save sinners. That, that you were separated from God in your sin. I am separated from God in my sin. Jesus Christ came, gave his life as a ransom for many, the Bible teaches. And we looked at that last week. And so this truth is established. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he also tells us, Mark does, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Very clearly, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Just as Jesus asked his disciples, Mark proclaims, you are, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And notice in verse 3 that Mark also declares here that Jesus Christ is Lord. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to look at that word Lord there in verse 3, and you might want to circle it next to it, write the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Because that's the literal word that Isaiah used. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he says there that this is Yahweh or Jehovah. And so it's very clear here in the Gospel of Mark, as he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he, makes, he, he, he connects there in verse 3, makes it abundantly clear, and should settle forever the debate of who was Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? Well, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, but more than that, he is God himself, God incarnate. He is Yahweh, Jehovah. He is Lord and he is God. This is a very big problem, this verse, for those that would say that Jesus is not Lord. He is indeed Lord. And this is a really important distinction, isn't it? A very important distinction between Jesus being the Son of God 
and Jesus being Lord. Have you discovered that? Huge ocean of difference between the two. Consider the case of a woman named Jenna. Us Magazine recently did an article about this woman named Jenna, and it said there that despite the fact uh, that she's starred in and now actively produces literally hundreds of adult films, this woman claims to be a Christian. She recently announced that she's pregnant, living with her boyfriend, and that she has no plans to marry. She says, quote, I'm just going for the babies, end quote. Uh, And amazingly, she declares that what she is doing is, quote, all in God's plan, end quote. Clearly, Jesus is uh, not Lord to this woman. Jesus is someone that she professes as a savior and believes that she has hope in, but it's not had any transforming change in the life in which she lives. And so she finds no contradiction in all of the claims of Christ and all of the, 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 the call of Christ, the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus, as the, as the, the Bible puts it, the, the call for you and I to be holy even as He is holy, she sees no contradiction between the two. Why? Well, because Jesus is not her Lord. He's her Savior. And sadly, this disconnect between what people say and what they do, it's widespread across America. Consider a 1991 Gallup poll. Now, this is 1991, and so the figures no doubt have changed. I'm sure they've changed for the worse. But here in 1991, this Gallup poll showed this, that 78% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. Sounds encouraging, right? 78% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. Now, you look a little deeper into the poll and you discover that they believe this despite the fact that many of those surveyed admit that they don't pray, that they don't read the Bible, and that they don't attend church. And yet 78% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. In fact, many in this poll even admitted that they live only to please themselves and that they give no regard, no thought as to how the Bible instructs them to live. Clearly, with this article in Us Magazine, supports that notion that there are so many people who are living this way. And I can tell you as a pastor, this is abundantly true. It's the, it's the most supreme frustration for me as a pastor to encounter people day in and day out who have what I like to call a spare tire mentality in their relationship with God. They have a spare tire relationship with God. That they, they, Hey, this is the car of my life and I'm going to drive it the way I want to drive it. And I'll keep Jesus in the trunk. And if I get a flat tire, I'll pull over. And Jesus, hey, you know, you can get me over this rough patch. But just until I can get my car back on the road and I can keep going and doing what I want to do. People profess Christ as their Savior and they're happy to relate to Him as such. uh, But they won't yield to Him as Lord. Jesus for them has become a AAA card. They just keep keep Him in their wallet. And they pull them out in an emergency when they have a flat. They're not willing to surrender to Jesus as Lord. And so in effect what happens is that those that that have this professed faith, but that don't have any change in their life, that they don't walk in obedience to God, the, the net result is that their life is based on a compromise. They say to Jesus in effect, look, I'll meet you in the middle. You take all my sin, you take my guilt, you take my shame... I'll take your your free gift 
of salvation, but don't get all preachy with me and ask me to do anything else. I'm just going to go and live life I want, and, I, and I've got my fire insurance, I've got my, my roadside emergency card, and I'll call you if I need you. Thanks for the salvation, Lord. And that's the way they go and they live their life. But listen, if you are a person who has received Christ as your Lord and Savior, there has to be a change in your life. Listen, the, co- the cross of Christ, it's not a compromise. It's an ultimatum. The cross of Christ is an ultimatum. And here's the ultimatum. Turn or burn. Now you go, wow, Pastor Ted, that sounds pretty harsh. Turn or burn? Really? Does that sound harsh to you? It's exactly what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now let's break verse 4 down. Because there's a lot of words here and it's helpful to know what these words actually mean. And so again, if you're taking notes, the word baptism there, literally translated, here's what it means, to overwhelm, to saturate, to immerse. To overwhelm, to saturate, and to immerse. And the word repentance there in verse 4, repentance, means a change of mind. Literally, that's what this means. It means a change of mind. And the, and the implication is that you would have a change of mind that would result in a change of heart that would result in a change of direction. It's not a change of mind like, oh yeah, that that makes sense, but you really don't believe it and it doesn't change what you do. No, true repentance means you change. It means, to put it in the most simple definition, in one word, turn. That's what repentance means. You turn from the direction you were going, you repent, you have this change of mind, this change of action. And the word remission is also used in verse 4. Remission literally means a relief from bondage or imprisonment. A relief from bondage or imprisonment. So let's put this all together. What is verse 4 saying? Verse 4 says that John came baptizing an overwhelming, saturating change of mind and behavior resulting in the release from bondage or imprisonment. Here's what 1 John 1.9 says. It says there that if we confess our sins, that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess literally means to agree with God. To agree with God that you have sinned in the first place. What is sin? Let what He calls sin, you call sin. No, this isn't, you know, just the way I was born. No, this isn't just, oh, hey, you know, I, uh, this is my genes, this is my heredity, this is what I was, you know, what I struggled. No, this is sin. We call what God calls sin, we call it sin, we agree with God. We agree that Jesus came and paid the penalty for that sin. And we believe that for us, apart from Jesus Christ, the wages of sin is death. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, and all those who, can, who believe that Jesus is the Christ in the heart, that they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that, that confession is, is really that, that turning, that, that repentance that takes place, that change of direction, that you will be saved. And if you look ahead at verse 14, just take a sneak peek there, that's exactly what Jesus said. There in, in verse 14, Jesus preached uh, there, 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel means good news. And we talked about what that good news is. You're a sinner, you're a blow it, you have no hope, but in Jesus Christ, you do. 
That's good news. You've got no hope in and of yourself. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus came, gave his life for you. That's good news. Verse 15. And here's what Jesus was saying. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus said. Now listen. Turn and burn. Ted, you still haven't explained that. That seems so, that, That's still kind of harsh to me. Really? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. We'll put it on the screen for you there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We'll leave that up on the screen just for a second because I'm going to come back to that. But listen, that verse, those two verses or three verses there, that ought to scare you to death. Seriously, I've been a Christian going on 20 years. I'm a pastor of a church. I've raised my kids to know and to serve the Lord. And I read Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and I say, Lord God, please let me be saved. You know, this scares me to death. Now, here's what I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that you are secure in Christ and that all who entrust their lives to Christ, he'll, he won't leave you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But what you have to ask is take a, you have to take a long look in the mirror and say, do I really know Jesus? Do I really know him? Have I really trusted him with my life? Or have I just had this statement of faith and then I go out and I live any way that I darn well want to? Listen, you can't live like hell and expect to go to heaven. It's not going to happen. There has to be a change in your life. And now I'm not saying that as a Christian you won't have sin, that you won't struggle. The Bible says a righteous man stumbles seven times. But it says there that he gets back up again. And what, I, what I'm saying and what Jesus is saying here in chapter 7, 21 through 23 of Matthew's gospel is that if you are going to profess faith in Christ, there needs to be a change in the way that you live. And if there's no change in the way that you live, and if you don't have the fruit in your life that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you need to ask yourself, am I really saved? Do I really know Him? The Bible says that you will know them by their fruits. No good tree can produce bad fruit, and no bad tree can produce good fruit. And so you, what, I'm, what I'm begging you to do this morning through this message is to really take a long, hard look in the mirror of your life and answer the question, is he my Lord? Is Jesus Lord to me or is he just my fire insurance card? Do I just have a profession of faith, but there hasn't really been a change in my life? Now, that word know or knew rather at the last part of verse 23 of Matthew's gospel up on the screen for you. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. That word new in the Greek, it's the word ginosko. And literally, here's what it means. It means to have a knowledge of someone through learning, through perception, and through understanding. This is a very intimate, ongoing relationship. And it's the same word that's used in many places in the Bible to describe the intimate, ongoing relationship of a husband and a wife. Now, let me ask you the question. How do you get to know your spouse? By living with them, by spending time with them, by interacting with them, by sharing your life with them. And that's what Jesus is saying in chapter 7. He's saying, look, I never knew you. You never shared your life with me. You never let me in. 
You said that I was your, your Savior, and you even said I was your Lord, but you never let me in. You know, I've been married now to Brenda, my beautiful wife, for almost 24 years. And I can tell you, after 24 years of marriage, I know my wife. I recognize her voice. Well, sometimes I confuse her for my girls, but they sound identical. But I recognize her voice. I finish her sentences. I know what she's thinking, even though she doesn't think I do. (laughs) I know what she likes. Uh, I know what makes her happy. I know what makes her sad. Uh, And I care about what makes her happy and what makes her sad. I heard Jeff Foxworth, he was ta- telling the story about he, the day that he realized that his wife, you know, totally had him manipulated and wired. Uh, and he said, you know, we're sitting together on the couch and all of a sudden my wife says, I'm thirsty. He says, the next thing you know, I'm up off the couch, I'm in the kitchen, I'm getting her something to drink. He said, I was halfway back to the couch when it dawned on me, wait a minute, I wasn't thirsty. <laughs> and you know, here's the thing, it's not that his wife had him manipulated or, or anything like that. The, the issue is, is that he was just living out through a relationship, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Again, we'll throw it up on the screen for you. It says there, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Let me ask you a question. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know Jesus like that? Does he know you like that? Jesus said this in John's gospel, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So how do we really know the Lord? How do we know the Lord? Well, that's going to be the the essence of the the balance of our message today. We're going to look at the two verses there, verse 2 and 3 of Mark's gospel. And Mark quotes uh, two Old Testament prophets here, Malachi uh, and Isaiah. Verse 2 is a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and he says this, as, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Uh, that word messenger means, means, it means herald, to herald good news. This is what John the Baptist did. He's talking about John the Baptist. We're really not going to get into looking at John the Baptist this week. We'll go on. We'll look at him next week. Uh, but what I want to focus, is on, focus on is the message that John the Baptist came preaching. And so there that, that quote in Malachi. This is significant, by the way. It's the first time that the Lord has spoken to the nation of Israel in 400 years. There's been a 400-year silence. And now here, uh, this prophecy from Malachi, written 400 years before, John comes preaching and proclaiming, and it says that he was sent to herald this word. And so this is now the Lord speaking again to the nation of Israel. But verse 3, and we're going to really finish up focusing on that. (coughs) He says there, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. How do we prepare for the Lord? Well, the word pre- prepare, it, 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 it's exactly what it sounds like. It literally means to make the necessary arrangements, the necessary preparations. Ladies, you know this. Your husband calls you and says, Hey, I'm on my way home and I'm bringing my friend Jack and his wife. And you say, What? <laughs> and you run around, you got all these preparations to make and you got 10 minutes to do it, right? That's exactly what this is talking about. We need to prepare. Um, And so we make the necessary preparations, but notice the end of verse 3 there, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That word paths is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it's euthus, right? Euthus. It sounds like, you know, a pickup game in, in New York. I'll take euthus, you know? Uh, but but euthus literally means to, to straighten, to level, to move forward sincerely and, and immediately. To straighten and level and move forward sincerely and immediately. Literally what this is, it's specifically talking about the construction of a road. That's exactly what this language is talking about. And it conveys the idea that, that uh, you know, you, you need to have this roadway constructed to make straight the relationship with God. See, this, this, this word is written by the prophet Isaiah, and it indeed was prophecy because it's proclaimed now in John's day. What was going on in John's day? Well, the Roman government was now, had conquered the world. And now they're ruling in, in every part of the world. And part, a key part of Rome's ability to conquer the world was their construction of an intricate network of roadways. As a matter of fact, at the peak of their, uh, their empire, Rome had built roads that spanned more than 53,000 miles. As a matter of fact, almost 54,000 miles worth of roadways that Rome had built. And these all fanned out in 372 different directions, all stemming there from, uh, from Rome. Then these roads were critically strategic to the empire of Rome. Because on these roads, they would send out their soldiers and all their men and their horses and their supplies. And these roadways became absolutely crucial because not only could they send out these, these supplies and these men and so on, but they could send them straight to where they needed to go and they got there quickly. As a matter of fact, there's one account of a Roman uh, leader, uh, one of the governors there in Rome, and he got word came to him that his brother had injured himself and the wound had become gangrenous and he was going to die from the infection. And so he got the word that his brother was dying and he traveled 500 miles in 24 hours to get to his brother's bedside before he died. How could he, in that day and age, travel 500 miles in only 24 hours? It was because the Roman roads that were constructed. Now, I did a lot of research this week on, on the, the Roman process of building roads. It's actually fascinating. And, you know, the history part in me wants to, like, tell you all about it. And uh, we would go way too late. So I'm going to kind of sum it up for you. But here's the thing. As I'm reading this, it's just so cool to, to realize all of the spiritual implications that go into this picture of what these guys did to build this roadway to facilitate their troops to be able to get out and to conquer and to do battle and to, to really win the world. And, you know, a, a, an interesting side note. My kids say I know everything about nothing. But an interesting side note is that it was this network of roads that, that Rome built which, which directly influenced the spread of the gospel. The Bible teaches that Jesus came at just the right time and that at just the right time, the Lord did, did this work. And that just right time happened to coincide with 54,000 miles worth of roadway stemming all through the new world and the gospel was, was brought straight away to so many different areas, facilitated in part because of these Roman roads that were constructed. Now what I want to do as we, as we bring the message to a close I want to focus on, you know, just all of the work that goes into building a road. Because obviously the implication for us is this. If we are to truly know Jesus, 
if we are to truly surrender our life to him as the Lord of our life, we have to make the effort to build strategic roads to meet him. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that for you to have a right saving relationship with Christ, that it depends on you doing a work uh, to meet him. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God comes to you. The Bible says that it's God's love for you. We love, it says, because he first loved us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the the road to salvation was was paved and, and built by the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And so what I'm not saying is that you need to build this roadway in your life to, to make a straight path to God to get saved. You don't have to do that. You have to just simply admit that you're a sinner and cry out to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, come in. And I pray for some of you here today, you've never done that. And I pray today will be the day that you cry out to Christ, that you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, that you invite him in. But listen, the moment that you do that, the moment you cry out to Jesus Christ, there needs to be a, <clears throat> a change in your life. There needs to be a turning in your life. You need to turn from your sin and you need to turn towards God. And in receiving Jesus Christ in you, now you need to begin living for Him. And there's stuff in your life. The moment we receive Christ, it's not like everything goes away, is it? Right? I'm still the piece of work I was before I received Christ. He's got a lot of work to do in me. He's got a lot of cleaning up to do in me. But the fact is now, it's Him doing the work in us with the Holy Spirit abiding within but I still have stuff that I need to work out for and I need to make a straight path to him. I need to get things out of my life and build and establish uh, a a better way of connecting with the Lord. And so if we truly want to know Jesus and surrender to him as the Lord of our life, we have to make the effort to build some strategic roads in our life to meet him. Now the first step in building a road, if you're taking notes, is to take a survey. The first thing you need to do is to take a survey. Lamentations 3.20 says this, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. This is exactly what the Romans did when they would build a road. First thing they would do is take a survey, right? And so for us, the same thing. We need to take step back and we need to take stock. We need to take inventory of our lives. We need to consider how am I living? What, you know, what does my life look like? We need to take that long look in the mirror. Do I have fruit in my life? And taking a survey, sometimes, you know, if you watch surveyors out on the street, they have help. There's a guy looking through one thing, and there's a guy standing down, you know, with, an, with another thing down the road. And, you know, there's kind of a process. And sometimes for us, in taking a survey, we need somebody else involved in the process. And so I think it's a healthy thing to ask a friend in that. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And it goes on to say, but the kisses uh, of an enemy... An enemy multiplies his kisses. In other words, you know, somebody that doesn't care very much about you, they're not, they're, hey, you're good. Looks good for my house, you know, kind of thing, right? But somebody that cares about you, they're going to tell you when, when you're off track. And so you go to a person, and someone that, that you love, that you respect, that you trust. The Bible says that we're to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so we go to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we say, hey, you know, I'm kind of taking inventory of my life. What are you, what are you noticing? <laughs> They're like, how much time you got? Right? 
But no, a true friend is going to say, listen, you know what? I've noticed that, uh, Ted, you got, you got an anger issue. What the heck's that supposed to mean? No, you know, they're, they're just, hey, look, I'm noticing this in your life, whatever. We need to take a survey. We need to figure out what, you know, where we're at. Now, having taken a survey, the next step, we need to remove the boulders in our life. You need to get those big rocks out of the way. And, you know, some of the rocks are more obvious than others, right? You know, we, we have these things in our life, these big boulders that kind of get in the way and interfere with our relationship with God. You know, some of the big rocks, uh, big obvious rocks, drugs, alcohol, uh, you know, those things are the, the big ones. Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. You know, really, Jenna, you, you can't do adult movies? No, you can't. That's a big boulder. Man, get that thing out of there. If you really know the Lord, you've got to love the Lord, there's got to be some boulders you get out of your life. Um, some aren't so obvious, but they're still big boulders, you know, unforgiveness and pride. You remember Jesus, he's talking about the guy that's coming before the altar, and he's going to give the Lord his offering there. And as he comes to the altar, there he remembers, well, wait a minute. I'm not right. I'm not right with my brother here. We, we, we got an issue between us. And the Lord says, leave your offering. Don't present it to God. You leave it right there. You go first, be reconciled to your brother. Then you come and present your offering to the Lord. See, he's, the Lord's saying, listen, there's, there's hindrances in your life that are going to impinge on your, on your relationship with God. They're going to interfere. There's these big boulders in your life. I remember when I was up in the mountains and we were driving down and there was a landslide. And there's this huge boulder right in the middle of the road, and it like turned into this two-hour detour because you know there it was, and 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 this is exactly what he's talking about. You know, you got this issue, man. Man, I'm not right with this guy. We we got to get that straight. There's got to be forgiveness that takes place. And so we work on this, and we and we have this reconciliation. We have this forgiveness, and we're moving this boulder out of my life. Well, the next step that we have to focus on, we need to fill in the holes. You know, when you're building a road, there's some high spots you've got to dig out of the way. There's some low spots that you've got to fill in. And we need to fill in the holes in our life. We need to ask ourselves, what are the things that I fall into? When it comes to my relationship with God, what are some of the things I fall into? Is it temptations? Is it some of my old habits? Is it some of my old friends? You know, what are those holes, those pitfalls that I fall into? You know, another aspect of filling in the holes that I see is that sometimes... As we're living the life, we don't have all the answers. We're living the Christian life, and we, we just we don't have it all figured out. And there's some holes in life that we're like, I, you know what? I just it's just this big black dark hole. I don't know what's in it. All I know is it's interfering with you know with my relationship with the Lord here. And that's when we need to, to pray and seek the Lord. Romans eight twenty six says this. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray. For as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so there's a lot of holes in my life, especially these days, lots of holes, lots of things we don't know. Things things we just don't understand, but that God does. And so we need to, to in order to make those straight paths to God, we need to be men and women of prayer. Just spending that time connecting with the Lord. Lord, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I'm kind of hindered from you here. And we need to be attentive as we pray to Him. Well, the next step is we need to dig down and we need to replace the loose and the shaky soil. Do you guys, do you remember the story? Uh, I don't have it on the screen for you, I'm sorry, but uh, Jesus, he's, he's, he's talking to, to his disciples and he's, he's talking about two different roads, two different ways. It was the theme of our men's retreat last year. You know, the, it's the broad road 
leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life, right? Well, it's interesting, the word that he's using there when he describes this broad road that leads to destruction, the, it, it, what it really means is this, this old familiar path. There's this old familiar path that leads to destruction. And the Lord said there's many that take it. And you know, for us, that as we go through life and we profess faith in Christ, I, I don't know about you, most of us are creatures of habit. I know I certainly am. And there are those things in my life that they're just their old familiar roads. They're not the narrow road. They're not the good road that the Lord wants me to take. They're just a well-worn, old familiar road. And you know, in, in the, the days of Rome conquering all its empire, as they would build these roads, one of the things that, that one of the historians comments on is that oftentimes they would build roads over old traditional established routes. But what they would do in the process, they would discover that many of these old routes, they weren't suitable for the, the travel that needed to take place. A lot of them, uh, it, it might have been this familiar route to a certain place. It might have even been the straightest route to a particular place. But it was built on loose and shaky soil. And so they would take their horses and their heavy equipment and they'd go over these roads and they would sink down and they would get stuck. And so they had to dig down. And we understand, those of you in construction, you understand, oh yeah, got to over-excavate that. Or hey, we got to take that out and replace it with, you know, some really good solid base material. They do this in roads all the time. And you, you take out the soil that's going to collapse and down and get ruts in it and the road's going to get all cracked and broke. No, we need to make this a level, solid, firm road. Uh, and you, I mean, do you, know, do you know in Rome... The roads today are so well constructed, some of them are still in operation today. Some of them are still, let Caltrans try that. Hey, go build a road and see if 2,000 years later they're not still using the same road. Man, they, they took out a lot of this old, loose, sinking sand and they put in this solid base and they made a road that was solid and, and, and sure. And we're called to do that as well. If you look in Matthew's Gospel, again, we'll throw it up on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus said this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Solid, founded on the rock. It's interesting and I won't have you turn there, but I just want to point out to you that, that there uh, in chapter 7, uh, it's where he talks about entering by the narrow way and so on. And, you know, as he's exhorting these believers, hey, listen, build your house on the rock. Do you know what's in between him talking about the narrow road that leads to life, the wide road that leads to destruction? And then, and then here he finishes up with this verse that we have on the screen for you. Listen, build your house on the rock. In between those two verses, Jesus says this. You've already heard it in the message today. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Lord says, look, it's important. We need to build our life on that solid foundation. And of course, the solid foundation is who? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And Jesus is the word of God. He's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Gospel of John says. And so we need to be taking in God's word, <clears throat> building our life on that sure foundation. And the roads that we build to God to connect with the Lord, they need to be established, firmly established on the word of God. 
I see so many heresies today with different people proclaiming different things about God and, you know, this and that, and they don't match up with Scripture, and yet people think, oh, that I'm going to follow this road and it's going to lead me to God. It's not going to lead you to God. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We're to call, we are called to establish those roads, those directions, those connections with God that are firmly established on his word. I'll close with this story. When I was a kid, we used to go to the beach all the time and uh, loved it. Spent my life at the beach. Uh, most of my baby pictures, you see me, I'm at the beach. It was just awesome. And uh, my dad, he, used to, he had a saltwater aquarium in the house. He used to keep it stocked with abalone and lobster. He'd go diving, and he'd come home, and he'd keep it stocked. And we would eat it all the time. I remember as a kid throwing a temper tantrum, you know, I've got to eat abalone again, you know. 200 bucks a pound. I'd love to eat abalone like that. But, but that's the way it was at my house, man. My dad just lived at the beach. We were always there. And one day in particular, we went down, and, and we, were, we went to um, Cabrillo Beach, and we used to drive down the beach. I don't know if your family was like mine, if you lived by the beach, but we used to all pile into the station wagon, you know, the big old long, mile-long station wagon. Back in the days when you didn't have to sit in a seatbelt or a car seat. You know, you'd just roll around there in the back with the ice chest and the umbrella. And, the, and I'm there, and we take the, the station wagon all loaded down. We go down to Cabrillo Beach. <coughs> well, we'd get there in the morning, and it's, you know, gray and foggy, but kind of like today, and uh, drizzly. And so the sand has this high moisture content. It's all packed down. We drive the cars out on the beach, man, set up. Everything's cool. Well, after a long day at the beach, late in the afternoon, sun's already come out, baked, you know, real good. All the moisture in the sand now goes away, and the sand becomes really loose. You know where I'm going with this. We get in the car. We start to go back out, and, man, this thing just sand subs, you know. And we are down, like, the, the bottom of the car is, like, almost on the sand. There's, like, you can almost... You know, we're buried. And I, and I see, I'm a little kid, and I see, you know, my dad's kind of upset, and my uncle's kind of upset, and everybody's kind of, and I'm, so now I'm starting to get scared. And my mom, she's just so cool, she goes, hey, kids, we're going to build a road. And, I, and as a kid, you're like, cool, we're building a road. And my dad's like, hey, take your sand pail, go get as many rocks as you can, Teddy. And so now it turns this crisis where we've sand subbed. Now it turns into this great day of adventure. We're building a road, you know. And there we are. We're getting rocks. We're getting pieces of driftwood or anything solid. My dad and my uncle digging out all the sand, just getting everything out from underneath the car. And we start putting all these rocks that all the kids are collecting. We start putting them all down. Of course, the car drives right out on the rocks that we all laid down. We got the sand out of the way. Here's the point, obviously, guys. Life, metaphorically, it's a day at the beach. And, we, and, and we, we, we load up all the stuff in the station wagon of life, and we head out, and, you know, we, we find these situations where, where the car just starts to sink, right? We get stuck. And when we get stuck, we have a choice. We can, we can stay there, stuck in the mire and in the mess, or we can make this road to, to connect with God, and to, to be able to get through and to find his good and his perfect will and get us back on the road of life. And you know, there we're stuck in the sand that day, me scared and freaking out. My mom telling me, hey, we're going to build a road. And we build a road. And do you know what? Not only did we get the car out of the sand, but today, I look back. I mean, how many times did we go to the beach? That's one of my fond, fondest memories. The day that we went down to the beach and got stuck in the sand and we made a road. And we got out of that road and we, and we got back to safety. Guys, as believers, we can't claim to have faith in Christ. 
We can't say, hey, you know, this is, this is, you know, who, what I profess, and then go out and live a different way. Because if you do that, you're going to get buried in the sand, and that's where you're going to get stuck, and you're not going to be able to bear the fruit in your life that God wants you to bear. Go out and bear fruit, fruit that will last, he said. So I pray as we close in prayer today that we will be those believers that seek the heart and the mind of God, and we do everything we can in our life to make our path straight to him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. All three verses of it. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you call us to make those roads, those paths to you straight. Lord, that you meet us, that you give us salvation, that you give us the hope of eternal life, that you give to us your Holy Spirit poured out upon us. And then, Lord, you call us to turn, to go to bear fruit, to make you our Lord and our Savior, to live lives of obedience to you. God, I pray, just as as we studied today, that you would show us how we can make those roads to you, the things that we need to dig out of our lives, the, the, the boulders that we need to, to, to take out, the survey that needs to take place. Lord, would you give to us the, the filling power of your spirit to do all of these things? And as we're praying, if you are here and never have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just encourage you today, by the mercies of God, to do that. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. To all who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, that He came and gave His life, you believe that in your heart, you confess it with your mouth, you live a life of repentance, you will be saved. And I encourage you here today, if that's you, just to pray this prayer in your heart and mean it. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I confess I am a sinner. I do believe you're the Savior and I ask you to come and to save me, to take over and to give me a new life. And Lord, I pray that that new life, in it I would be empowered to walk in obedience. And Lord, that's the opener for all of us as Christians just to agree and say yes and amen. Lord, we ask your, beg your forgiveness for the times that we walk in disobedience. You've called us to to bear fruit. You've called us to be holy even as you are holy. And Lord, Lord, forgive us for those times when we are disobedient to you, when we don't walk in newness of life. And we pray, Lord, today, we choose today, the first day of the week, Lord, so help me, God, I'm going to walk in newness of life. Help us, Lord, to take inventory, to look in the mirror, and to make the changes by the power of your Holy Spirit that need to be made. Finally, Lord, we partake of communion today as we do every week. And you tell us that this is our time to be remembering of what you have done for us. You commanded that we should do this in remembrance of you. The bread symbolic of your body broken for us and the juice symbolic of your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, you tell us that we're not to partake of this. We're not to eat and drink of this in an unworthy manner, but instead we're to take this time to do business with you, to remember what you've done for us and to choose to walk in obedience to you. Lord, may we do that today by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, so help us God. Amen. And if you're new here, just the way we do this, we're going to play a song and you come up and partake. Grab the elements, go back to your seat, do business with God. You partake individually when you're ready and we'll close with a worship song. God bless you guys.